0: Double Elvis. This is Nikki Lynette, host of About a Girl. I'm excited to tell our listeners and fans of the show that About a Girl has been honored with a Silver Signal Award for Best Podcast in Arts and Culture. I was also personally honored with a Silver Signal Award for Best Podcast Host. The Signal Awards are all about recognizing and elevating the art of the podcast. We are thrilled to be recognized in the Signal Awards inaugural year. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Shout out to iHeart, Double Elvis, and to our amazing producer, Scott Janowitz, for their dedication to About a Girl. About a Girl is a production of iHeart Radio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Willie Nelson, Shotgun Willie, the red-headed stranger, reigning bandit of outlaw country music. One of the most recognizable men in music, and not just because his long braids, scruffy beard and signature bandana have made him into an archetype of country western music. Willie Nelson has lassoed 20 number one country hits and more than 100 Billboard chart singles over the span of 60 years. That's not even counting the songs he sold long before he became a household name. He gave Patsy Cline something to be crazy about. He sent Roy Orbison pretty papers, which earned them both plenty of pretty green paper at the bank. But this is not about Willie Nelson. This is about Shirley Colley Nelson, the woman who helped launch Willie's career as a performer. A woman who climbed to the top tier of the country music circuit as just a teenager and traded her trajectory as a recording artist and staple of the silver screen for a life with the duet partner of her dreams. This is about Shirley Collie Nelson's two greatest loves and her two greatest losses. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. Shirley Simpson wasn't too young to know what love was. Just 14 years old, sure, but she wasn't foolish. Shirley knew what made her pulse quicken and her heart flutter. What she saw before her on this day made her feel like she was floating up to heaven on a fluffy white cloud. Shirley traced the guitar's shape with her fingers along the curves of its mahogany sides and neck. It was like welcoming a new baby into the family. It's a Martin, 15 inches long, model 00018, $75 used. 75 bucks was a lot of money for a country girl like Shirley, but you can't put a price on true love. She forked over the cash without hesitation. She needed a proper guitar anyways, if she wanted to strike gold with her new job on the radio. Young as she was, Shirley Simpson was already something of a fixture in the Missouri music scene. She was the tiny dancer and songbird of a small town called Chillicothe, just 90 miles outside of Kansas City. Shirley sprang to her feet to dance when she was just 18 months old and she was singing and strutting by age three. Playing guitar came later in life at the advanced age of 11, technically already years into her career. Shirley wooed guests at local service clubs and later sang at war bond rallies during World War II. The kid was too talented to keep under wraps, and the Kansas City radio station KMBC knew it. In 1945, KMBC needed a new girl to perform in the duo Millie and Sue, a favorite act at the station's barn dance program, the Bush Creek Follies. Shirley snapped up the roll and forked over the $75 required to buy that Heavenly Martin guitar from the show's previous suit. The richness of her vocals cascaded over the airwaves. People listening at home couldn't see the cowgirl on the other side of the speaker, but they could picture her. Wavy red hair framing a confident smile. A kerchief knotted around her neck. A gorgeous guitar nestled in her lap. Shirley sounded like a seasoned performer because, well, she was one. She fit in just fine when the big names of rural music stopped by the Bush Creek Follies on Saturdays. Roy Haycuff, Jean Autry, Mother Maybelle, the Carter family. Shirley was surrounded by legends from the jump and they were just as impressed with her as she was with them. After five years with KMBC, Shirley broke away from the 1000000 Sue Act to accept work performing in Texas with influential Western singers like Bob Wills and his brother Johnny Lee Wills. Five years later, Red Foley snatched her up for the 1950s ABC TV program Ozark Jubilee back home in Missouri. Everywhere Shirley went, her Martin guitar came along. Musicians in country western circles loved to stroke that guitar as much as Shirley did. Men like Jimmy Wakely, Webb Pierce, Rex Allen, and Porter Wagner would rehearse with the Martin just to marvel at her rich tone. Merle Haggard said she had a gorgeous neck and body and admired how her strings were set so low. Hugh Farr, a member of the Sons of the Pioneers, even took it upon himself to keep her in tune. Shirley said it was like the instrument was alive, eager to receive all this care and attention. The Martin had a name by now Lady Guitar. Shirley had a new name herself. Ozark Jubilee dubbed her Shirley Cadell to better distinguish the adult Shirley from her old role as Sue in Million Sue. Whatever you called her, Sue or Shirley, she was in high demand. TV programs across the country wanted Shirley on their set. She floated from the Philip Morris Country Music Show in Nashville to ABC's Country America in Hollywood. Appearances on the Groucho Marx show and the popular quiz show You Bet Your Life raised her profile even higher. Shirley's roots in the country scene were growing deep. She married the prominent DJ Biff Colley and embraced another name change, becoming Shirley Colley. She was signed to Columbia Records, where she recorded a few solo performances and duets with Honky Tonk singer Lefty Frizzell, Then she leapfrogged to Liberty Records and started cranking out songs there. Two of the songs cracked the top 25 in the U.S. country charts, Dime A Dozen and Why Baby Why with Warren Smith. She was laying down tracks with the who's who of the country scene. Floyd Tillman, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and Clyde Beavers all sought studio time with Shirley in 1960 alone. The next year, Liberty Records nudged yet another man in Shirley's direction, a perplexing new addition to their artist roster. The gentleman wrote masterful lyrics, that much was certain. And the public responded to them, just not when he sang them. He wrote Roy Price's hit Nightlife and Funny How Time Slips Away by Billy Walker. When Patsy Cline put her own spin on his song Crazy, it became the biggest jukebox hit in history. His first hit, Hello Walls, recorded by country singer Theron Young, sold two million copies. The writer claimed he nearly fainted when he opened his first royalty check for $3,000. But when he got into the recording booth, something changed. His phrasing was different. So was his pitch. His delivery was unpredictable, way behind the beat. This seemingly awkward style made it impossible for him to nail down a record deal in Nashville, where different was not considered better, or even good. But on the strength of his songs, with a proven ability to create hits, Willie Nelson signed with Liberty in 1961, though even the label executives were left scratching their heads over what to do with this wily singer-songwriter. The only thing they could think of was to bring in their not-so-secret weapon. So Liberty arranged for Shirley to drop in while Willie was recording new music in Los Angeles. Now, it wasn't a big deal to collaborate with Willie Nelson in 1961. On the other hand, working with a country singer who had regular screen time like Shirley Colley was a big deal, and Willie knew it. He cut to the chase. I've got a song you should record, he offered unabashedly, even though he met Shirley just moments prior. A warm sensation washed over her, a divine pleasure that was as soothing as it was sharp and all-consuming. Shirley called it instant love, just like the feeling that overtook her when she first met Lady Guitar. There was nothing in the world like it. After that tender introduction, she didn't need much convincing to get into the booth with Willie. They began with a duet called Willingly, which is such a fitting title for two lovebirds that it almost sounds like fiction. Shirley easily kept up with Willie, note for note, matching his unique vocal styling and clearing the hurdles of his unusual phrasing. Willie worked to balance out Shirley's style too, breaking out some artificially thin tenor to mix with her richer voice. Liberty loved what they heard and released willingly in March of 1962. It was Willie's second ever single, and his first to crack the top 10 on the Billboard country charts. It fared much better than his first release, but that wasn't a high bar to top. Willie's solo debut, Mr. Record Man, had sold just 4,000 copies. Willie was smitten, and not from his newfound success. Shirley's talents downright charmed him. Playing guitar and bass came just naturally to her, Her vocal mastery allowed her to do everything, from mirroring his vocal style to breaking into hearty yodels. Most importantly, Shirley just got Willie in his music when no one else did. Their voices were magic together. And that was just the beginning. Forget everything you know about Willie Nelson. Forget the image of a scraggly-haired hippie in a headband or weathered cowboy hat, the red, white, and blue, classical-style strap holding a beat-to-hell acoustic guitar to his chest, and the half-smoked joint probably dangling from his lips. In the early 1960s, that version of Willie Nelson didn't exist yet. This Willie slicked his short hair back like a gentleman and kept his face clean-shaven. He performed in dapper suits, complete with a tie. The clean-cut Willie Nelson of 1962 had a minor hit on his hands, thanks in no small part to Shirley Collie. Willingly gave his performing career a decent push, laying the ground for another top 10 country hit called Touch Me, released in May of that same year. But a handful of Billboard chart placements doesn't make a certified country star. Fortunately, Willie had other options for making money with his music. In addition to writing for other artists, he already had a dependable gig playing bass on the road with Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys. That was the good news. The bad news was that touring meant leaving Shirley behind. But neither Willie nor Shirley were in a position to say jack about it. Willie was married with three children to take care of, and Shirley was still hitched to Billy Collie, himself a bonafide Willie Nelson fan. Biff and Shirley once made the trip to see Ray Price and the Cherokee Cowboys performing at the Harmony Park Ballroom in Enheim, later inviting Willie to their home for dinner. Biff unknowingly welcomed his wife's new love to their dinner table and then took him down to his home studio so Willie could record promotional spots for KFOX, the California radio station Biff worked for. The situation grew increasingly awkward from there. When Biff and Shirley visited Nashville, sometimes they'd meet up with Willie and his wife Martha. On the surface, they were two couples grabbing drinks and a Southern meal together. But in reality, there was only one couple, Shirley and Willie, and two people about to be handed divorce papers. After one of these Nashville trips, Biff caught a direct flight home While Shirley chose to linger in Music City, taking up residence at a local Motor Inn. Willie camped out one room over, never bothering to tell Martha where he was. He was missing for two days. Martha was good and pissed off, and when she figured out why Willie was missing, she was fit to be tied. While he hadn't exactly tackled the issue head on, Willie made it clear that his eyes and his heart were wandering. Now it was Shirley's turn to break it to Biff. She had to act swiftly. Ray Price and the Cherokee Boys had wrote Willie into a tour of Canada, and Shirley wasn't about to sit at home, twiddling her thumbs, waiting for her true love to return. She wrote a note for Biff explaining that she had to follow her heart, even if that meant following Willie in a tour bus through another country. Shirley wasn't just leaving Biff behind, either. She was turning her back on her biggest career opportunity to date. CBS TV was preparing a new comedy called The Beverly Hillbillies, about a family of bumpkins who strike it rich. And they needed a woman who could portray Pearl Bodine, a goofy guitar-plucking character known for her knack for yodeling. The role fit Shirley like a tailored nudie-cone suit, but she had made up her mind. She snuck into the Cherokee Cowboys tour bus with little more than Biff's American Express card and her beloved Lady Guitar. That Martin cast a spell on the entire band, especially Willie, who fell for her almost as hard as he fell for Shirley. He gave Lady Guitar a new name for a new era. To Willie Nelson, she was simply called Baby. It was a surprisingly fitting name, unbeknownst at the time. Shirley and Willie would never have children together. They fussed over Shirley's beloved Martin like they would an infant. There were rules for handling Baby. No using a pick. No drinking alcohol while playing her. No smoking or swearing either. Baby was too pure to witness that kind of behavior. Besides Shirley joked, Baby was only 21 years old. Willie crafted some of his most tender songs with Baby in his arms, like Healing Hands of Time, Pretty Paper, and December Day. Around the same time, Shirley wrote Once More with Feeling, which would eventually end up in the hands of fellow country great Glenn Campbell. Willie's friend Roger Miller wanted to borrow Baby. He figured she could pull a couple of songs out of him. Baby's tone and energy were becoming the stuff of legends. Shirley and Willie agreed to let Roger borrow Baby for a day, and like any good parent, they panicked when she wasn't home by midnight. Willie stalked around town until he found Roger in his car, cradling Baby, putting the final touches on a new song called Dang Me. It would go on to be one of Roger Miller's first and biggest hits. Baby's powers were real. On the road, Willie, Shirley, and Baby formed their own little family. You could even call them a family within a family, since the Cherokee Cowboys welcomed Shirley and Baby as one of their own. While on tour, ringleader Ray Price auditioned Shirley to become an official member of the band. But riding alongside those cowboys for the long haul didn't interest Shirley. She hopped on that bus for one reason, and one reason only to make a life and music with Willie Nelson. But first, there was work to do. Launching Willie Nelson as a performer was the priority. Shirley had professional stripes that Willie could only dream of at that point in his career. Willie could sing, and maybe he could rhyme even better, but he often couldn't keep his commitments when it came to the business side of the music industry. The Nashville pros whispered that Willie couldn't keep an appointment And even if he did, he showed up looking like he was lost in a haze. He wasn't exactly the kind of person you'd be eager to do business with if you were part of the old school music row machine, which ran on efficiency. Shirley made plans to massage out all those kinks. Willie would need to file his taxes properly and get himself a driver's license if they were going to keep recording together. She tried to whip him into shape just in time for the release of his debut album. And then I wrote, which he released in September of 1962. It did good, but not great. And good albums didn't get you far when it came to booking shows. But being a Liberty recording artist, on the other hand, that got you gigs. Maybe even more gigs than you can handle. In 1963, Shirley and Willie's vision crystallized in the neon glow of Sin City. Willie had successfully put together his own band, which of course included Shirley on the bass with occasional yodeling. Willie pulled on his ties to Liberty to lock in an extended run of shows at the Golden Nugget in downtown Las Vegas. The band was expected to perform six 40-minute shows between the hours of 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. for nights on end. Pills called Green Meanies, a.k.a. Placidils, powered the band through their rigorous new schedule. By the time the engagement at the Golden Nugget had run its course, so had Willie and Shirley's respective marriages. Once the divorce papers were signed, they started prepping a marriage certificate. After their final Golden Nugget show in January of 1963, Shirley and Willie entered the Chapel of Love as blushing bandmates and exited as husband and wife. Her usual, Willie waxed poetic with his words, I promise you love forever and after forever, you are Willie, read the inscription inside his ring for Shirley. From that moment forward, she was Shirley Collie Nelson, wife of Willie, mother of baby. Their love of music and for each other carried them across the country from one dingy roadhouse to another. Willie's band toured through the Southwest and every dive by that would welcome them. As cliche as it sounds, the road was their home. Even when they eventually paused in Fort Worth, Texas for Willie to reconnect with his three children, nothing felt permanent. Their love deserved a real home, not just a set of wills that moved them from town to town. Besides, that set of wills wasn't bringing in much money. Willie's main source of income was still songwriting, and it would be a hell of a lot easier to put pen to paper if he could stay in one spot, removed from the chaos of the road and rowdy nightlife. It was time for Mr. and Mrs. Nelson to settle down. Assuming, of course, that Willie was capable of such a thing, Willie flipped his songwriting royalties into a 17-acre ranch in Ridgetop, Tennessee, located an hour north of Nashville, but just shy of the Kentucky border. The new Nelson homestead was meant to be a place where Willie could hide himself away and crank out more hit tunes. Perhaps he could glean inspiration from tending to his new vegetable gardens, or resting under the cool shade of the pine trees and weeping willows on their property. It was old-fashioned country living in every sense of the phrase. And Willie was content to don a pair of overalls and spend his days in pig pens and chicken coops, for a while. But there were only so many stories he could squeeze out of one homestead. A fresh breeze and a home-cooked meal every day was nice, sure, but a cold beer underneath a cloud of smoke at a different dive bar every night was even better. The life Willie loved was out in the world, making music with his friends, doing things his way. As far as he could see, that was the only path to a satisfied mind. And he still had a challenge ahead to really establish himself as a country singer. He saddled up and set out on the road again. This time, there was no option for Shirley to hop on board with him. She had children to raise, Willie's children. It started when Willie's first wife, Martha, sent their son, Billy, to live with them in Ridgetop. Then came his sister, Susie. Then came Lana, the eldest child. Motherhood was thrust upon Shirley overnight, and it was nothing like taking care of an acoustic guitar. Three more mouths to feed, three more sets of clothes to wash, three innocent people to raise like her own and mold into kind souls. There was hardly any time to cradle baby. Her baby, and write or rehearse with her fond collaborator. Shirley joked that Baby was semi-retired after touring for over 20 years. But if Baby was semi-retired, then so was Shirley. Yet somehow, Willie, the actual parent, was the one who had the privilege of honing his chops across the country. That's what she hoped he was doing, at least, when her husband left home. Shirley often had no idea what kind of shit he was stirring up. All she could count on was that he was, in fact, stirring up shit, especially if he was knocking back bottles of booze. During their time together in Fort Worth, Shirley became well acquainted with Willie's drinking habits. Liquor emboldened him, and not in a good way. He became an instigator. In Willie's own words, dumb and violent. After a few drinks, he'd think nothing of picking fights at bars and getting his ass handed to him by some hulking 10-gallon shadow that he couldn't even picture the next day. Whatever memories he did retain were invariably overwhelmed by a raging hangover. He'd cure his morning queasiness with, what else, more liquor. It was an unforgiving cycle, and Willie knew it. In Texas, Willie turned to boxing to blow off steam. Now he learned a bit of Kung Fu to practice mind over matter, but it wasn't the same, and it showed. At home in Tennessee, it was another night without Willie, another night with his kids, another night of Shirley wondering what she did to drive her husband away like this. Was she a bad wife? A bad mother? Was she failing his children? Is that what made him leave? She jumped to her feet when she heard footsteps on the porch. What timing? Maybe Shirley could ask Willie himself. She greeted her drunken husband at the door, curlers in her hair and all. He staggered towards her like a newborn fawn. They locked eyes for a moment. Shirley opened her mouth to begin her lecture. Willie just furrowed his eyebrows and turned on his heels. Anger simmered in Shirley as she realized what was happening. Willie was so drunk that he thought he staggered home to the wrong address. So plastered, he didn't recognize his own house or his own wife. And from the looks of it, the son of a bitch was fixing to crawl behind the wheel again and peel away into the night. Shirley was not having it. She grabbed Willie's arm and yanked him back with enough force to hurl him through the storm door. Willie wasn't the only one who knew Kung Fu. Shirley had learned a move or two from her husband, but she never dreamed she'd have to use it against him. Willie toppled through the door. The force of the crash sliced his forehead open. Her husband lay motionless on the floor while blood poured from the fresh gash. Panic sparked in Shirley's chest. I killed him! Oh God, I killed my husband! Of course, it would take more than clumsy Kung-Fu to sink Willie Nelson. With blood streaming down his face, he sat up and launched himself into a drunken sprint through the pastures. The next morning, Willie awoke with a fresh scar and blood caked on his forehead, alone and confused. Confusion was his most natural state these days. By 1969, His stops at home were few and far between. Willie was on the road again, driving into oblivion again, and again, and again. But now it wasn't just the thrill of the open road that was calling to him either. Out on tour, Willie made a point of keeping his ring finger bare. Part of it was just for appearances. Men could maintain a bigger fan base if women thought they had a shot with the cowboy on stage. But this was no ruse for Willie Nelson. Women did have a shot with him, a good shot. Women like Connie Kupka in Conroe, Texas. Willie first spotted her at the 21 Club, a venue just north of Houston. Connie liked Willie's tunes, and she really liked that he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. Willie got her number and started calling her every time he was in East Texas. Over the years, Phone calls became dates, dates became a relationship, and Connie became a mother. She gave birth to their daughter Paula in October of 1969. Willie now had three lives to balance, two families in two different states, plus his life on the tour bus. Add to that some chronic drinking and Willie Nelson was growing increasingly confused. Meanwhile, Shirley was growing bored. Her creativity was stagnant. Malaise curdled into jealousy and resentment. She began to take lovers, just because she rightly suspected that Willie was doing the same. Shirley sensed some sort of affair, or God help her, affairs, must be brewing behind her back. She just had no idea how serious it was. Her wake-up call came in the mail in 1969. A bill for Willie from a Texas hospital claimed that quote-unquote Mrs. Connie Nelson gave birth to a baby named Paula that fall. A wave of disgust dissolved the warm, fuzzy feeling her husband once stoked in her heart. Willie really called his mistresses Mrs. Nelson and then had that bill mailed right to their house, where the real Mrs. Nelson lived, as if he didn't give a damn as Shirley knew. A wave of emotion swept her into a frenzy. There's a hospital bill and a baby, Shirley cried out to no one in particular. She flew into a rage. She hurled furniture across the room, just like she'd hurled Willie through that storm door. He wasn't even home to witness her wrath. Maybe that was the worst part. When was he home anyways? Did he have the right to call this place home anymore? Shirley didn't know, and she didn't care. Her cabin fever had reached a near-fatal high. She guzzled a container of pills without hesitation. Now it was Shirley who was in a haze, blindsided by the recklessness of her husband, the man who swore to love her forever and after forever. Bullshit. They hadn't even made it through a decade of marriage and he was starting other families across the country like a goddamn franchise. Lana, Shirley's oldest stepchild, had the sense to coax her into the car and bring her to the emergency room. She soothed her stepmother from the driver's seat while she navigated the streets without a license at only 15 years old. It was time enough that someone looked after Shirley. In one day, Shirley Collie Nelson learned about her husband's infidelity, nearly overdosed, and had her stomach pumped. Willie was present for none of it. When he did finally come home, he had the audacity to deny the affair to Shirley, straight to her face. He claimed the bill was for some minor medical procedure he needed while on the road. He only fessed up when Shirley reminded him that another woman's name and baby were listed on the bill. Willie sighed and dropped the bomb. Connie's my girlfriend and Paula's our daughter. It was worse than Shirley could have ever imagined. Willie replaced her with a new sweetheart while he was out developing his career, just like he did when he swapped Martha for Shirley. But Shirley wasn't just his wife. She was his musical partner. Emphasis on was. After Shirley's vocal contributions to Willie's album Both Sides Now, they would never record music together again. They tried to patch things up at first. Willie said he'd stop visiting Houston. Shirley said she'd stop taking lovers. Both parties buckled before long. Maybe Willie wasn't seeing Connie anymore, but his shirt still turned up smelling like perfume and stained with lipstick. Now Shirley was just as guilty. Willie once bugged the phone so he could catch her sweet-talking another man. Worse, he caught her at the apartment of a lover in Nashville. There was just no harmony between Willie and Shirley anymore. It was over. When Shirley moved back to her home state of Missouri in late 1969, Connie and baby Paula took her place in Ridgetop almost immediately, as if Shirley had never been there with her baby. Or should she call her Martin Lady Guitar again, like she did in the pre-Willie days? In the end, it didn't matter. Shirley could at least still cradle her first true love in her arms. Lady Guitar cradled Shirley right back, as her owner healed from heartbreak. Shirley plucked Lady Guitar's strings to relax herself at night, letting that rich tone lull her to sleep. She wrote songs regardless of whether or not she would ever return to the studio, with Willie or anyone else. The 1970s were Shirley's quiet, contemplative, songwriting years. Maybe that was the way life in Ridgetop could have been if Shirley hadn't been forced into motherhood and homemaking overnight. It would be ten years before the public would get another good look at Shirley Colleen Nelson. When the time was right for her to step back on stage, it was like no time had passed. Her crimson hair was as vibrant as ever, and her vocals were just as masterful. As for her partner on stage, well, even though the romance had evaporated, the warmth between them had returned. It was just like the day they recorded "Willingly." Shirley's grand return to the stage was a rendition of Amazing Grace alongside Willie in Las Vegas, a decade after their divorce. Time and tenderness washed away any bad blood between the old friends. Shirley relished the performance, even as major stages in big cities were long in her rear view, by choice. After playing for thousands of people across the country, both in real life and on TV screens, she had a new vision for the rest of her days with Lady Guitar. Shirley and her true love spent the 1980s performing for the people who had limited options for hearing music. Together they visited nursing homes, churches, even prisons, serenading new faces with the same strengths that once wooed everyone from Merle Haggard to Willie Nelson himself. Eventually, the state of Missouri hired Shirley to play for mentally disabled patients in long-term care facilities. Everyone reacted the same way when they heard Lady Guitar. Musician or non-musician, celebrity or everyday citizen, they all wanted to press an ear into the curve of Lady Guitar's body, and hear that calming tone. Shirley's pride in Lady Guitar only grew with age. Her lover still had all her original parts, even after decades of touring. Shirley would brag that no matter how bad her financial situation was, she never once pawned her lovely Lady Guitar. To Shirley, there was only one thing worth than saying goodbye to Lady Guitar, and that was Lady Guitar lying dormant. Instruments don't age the same way that people do. A human body will gradually break down as decades pass. But if you put care into a guitar, it can live as long as you're still loving it. A glance at their respective guitars could tell a lot about Shirley and Willie. Willie's guitar, obtained in 1969 and named Trigger after Roy Rogers' horse, is a wreck. A gaping hole worn through the body from years of strumming, the names of dozens of friends and legends scratched into the wood, rescued from a fire, and saved from the IRS. Trigger is a workhorse, not worth $25, but for its pedigree. Yet it's still holding together, still on the road, a grizzled icon. Lady Guitar, on the other hand, is finely aged, a well-used antique, capable of magic. And just as Trigger aged faster than Willie, so it was the inverse for Shirley. When she reached her 70s, she struggled to strum and stroke her Martin, who looked no worse for the wear. She passed Lady Guitar to a trusted friend who could make sure that her true love would never be silenced. Shirley was 76 then. She passed away two years later in Springfield, Missouri, with her husband, Ed, by her side. Lady Guitar was 68. Willie's so-called baby wasn't a baby anymore. She was a fully matured entity, capable of soothing souls and starting decades-long country careers, including Willie Nelson's. But this isn't about him. This is about Shirley Collie Nelson. A pioneer woman for rural music who paved her own way to the billboard charts and the silver screen. A young woman who cut her teeth in country music and earned the respect of her established male peers when she wasn't even old enough to drive. A musician who sang and strummed with ferocity, beloved even more fiercely. This is about a girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janowitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Victoria Wozlak. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janowitz and Matt Tehany with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at About a Girl Pod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.